Now, can I tell you something? Can I tell you, can I tell you a secret? Isn't it funny when, when we don't ever say, I want to tell you a secret. So can I, can I tell you a secret? It's hushed. We kind of, kind of lean forward. Is he really going to tell you a secret? Secrets are interesting. And secrets are, secrets are valuable. Secrets make us, uh, they make us feel good. When someone, when someone comes to you and says, come here, I want to share a secret with you. It makes us feel kind of special, like we're included. But it can also make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Hey, I want to tell you a secret about so-and-so. I'm not sure I really want to know that. But secrets are important, and secrets are valuable, and secrets are, are, are uh, uh, you know, we, we hear books, we read books. You know, here's a book on the secret of marriage. Here's a book on the, the secret of life, or the, the secret of the perfect golf swing, or, or here's one. Let me tell you the, the secret of making a lot of money. Just send me all your money, and I'll tell you the secret. You know, that's how secrets are. They're hidden. They're a mystery. You know, one of the first commercials I ever remember growing up was a, an old Lady Clairol commercial. Does she or doesn't she? Only her hairdresser knows for sure. It's a secret. Well, our passage today is talking about a secret. It's talking about a mystery. It's talking about something that everyone seeks in this world that everyone desires And I invite you to turn to our passage in Philippians chapter 4. And as you're turning, let me set you up uh, with a little background. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And he is thanking, first of all, he's thanking God for for the Philippians. But he's specifically, among other things, thanking them for this gift that they had sent. It's a very timely gift that this church had sent to Paul. He hadn't seen them in 10 years And yet now he receives this gift. And you'll appreciate this passage even more when you realize that he wrote this passage as a prisoner in an apartment tucked away somewhere in the corner of Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. He didn't have the opportunity to move about freely like he once had to to meet people and to greet people and to, to minister to people. He was there in isolation. And like a prisoner of that day, he had great needs. They, they depended on charity or other prisoners or friends to supply even their most basic sustenance. And this little apartment serves as his waiting room, chained next to a soldier, awaiting word any day from Nero that he was going to have a trial and that trial could possibly result in his execution. It wasn't an easy time. And yet these friends in the Philippian church had heard about this and they had gathered some things and, and they, had, they had come up with a gift and they sent their friend Ephroditus to, to uh, Epaphroditus to deliver this gift. And so that's the background as we come to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 10 through 13. Here's the word of the Lord. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that's not something that sounds like what a prisoner would say. I've learned the secret of being content. Let's think about that. What do you think about when you hear the word content? You know, it, it, it's a good word. Uh, it's a feeling word. You know, it's when, you, when, you're, when your favorite dog comes and sits at your feet just wanting to be with you. Or when you hear a, a little kitten purring. Or when you, you, you sit on your back porch after a good day and, and, and the, and you, in the night. And you just hear the, the peaceful sounds of the, of the night all around you. Content. Nice back rub. Content. But you know that word used here is not primarily about a feeling. It includes a feeling, but what that word means, it means self-contained. It means I don't need any outside assistance. I have that all I need. I have all I need. You have a meal and you're full. I don't need any more food. I've had all that I need. Or more broadly, I'm not worried about all the other stuff. I am content. I have all that I need. And I have never met a person, including myself, who does not want to live in a state of constant contentment. I mean, our culture in America is built and bent on contentment. We seek it. We seek our contentment in stuff. We seek our contentment in entertainment. We seek it in relationships. We seek it in leisure. We seek it in various amusements. And we're not sure where to find it. And we're not sure how to make it last. But it's something that we surely want. And you know what? I think the fact is that our culture breeds a desire for contentment by creating a sense of discontentment. We live in a culture of discontent. Educator Neil Postman in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, made a very good point. He said, what an advertiser needs to know is not what's right about the product, but what is wrong about the buyer. Just look at ads on TV. Do you, have the, do you have the latest phone? You need the latest phone. You can get a free upgrade for the latest phone. Or, or, or hey, these new speakers have come out and, and, and they have the neatest thing in the world. The, the volume dial doesn't go up to 10. It goes all the way to 11. That's got to be better. And I've got to have that. Clothes or body appearance or, or, or you know, wear this or, or, or look like this. I mean, how many of us just recently have experienced some form of discontentment just with the way that we look. Football's coming up. That means beer commercials are going to be on TV. And if you ever watch one of these, 95% of them, everybody in those commercials is happy and everyone in those commercials is good looking. And man, if I drink that beer, then I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be good looking. (laughs) You know? But... That's kind of what we expect in a godless culture, in a culture of humanism where the motto is life is about meeting my needs. Just give me a God that can meet my needs. Just, you know, you deserve a break today, so get up and get away. You deserve it. And what's happened is we live in the midst of a culture that has cleverly taken wants and has changed them into needs. 
Here's an interesting statistic. It actually came out over 10 years ago from U.S. News. It says, uh, for Amer- they found that for Americans with household incomes of under $25,000, it would take $54,000 a year to fulfill the American dream. For those making $100,000, it would take $192,000 to f- fulfill the American dream. In other words, the American dream lies nearly twice the distance away because we can fall prey so easily to this law of getting and wanting. The more you want or the more you get, the more you want. And so you get it and you want more. You want more. Have you seen the those AT&T commercials where they have the, the little children in a, in a classroom and they're there, uh, the fellow's talking to him. There's one commercial that I, I saw the other day and I actually wrote down what it said. The announcer, the fellow, the, the older guy sitting there with all those, all those kids and says, it says, who thinks more is better than less? And everybody raises their hand. And then he says, okay, why? And the little girl says, because more is better than less because if you have more less stuff than you want some more stuff because your parents won't let you because there's only a little and she gets flustered and she just says, we want more, we want more. And then the tagline, right? It's not complicated. More is better than less. You know what? I agree. If it's good stuff, more is better than less. Many cases, fact of the matter is, more is better than less. And what I'm going to say to you this morning, what I'm going to submit to you, is that true, deeply satisfying, lasting, eternal contentment that is talked about in this passage doesn't come from getting along with little. It comes from being satisfied with having a lot. Did you hear that? It comes from being satisfied with having a lot. Now, am I saying more stuff? Am I saying better circumstances? Am I saying fewer problems? I mean, that's what contentment is, right? That's not what I'm saying. Okay, then what, what are you saying? I'm saying that we can get duped into thinking that we're getting more from out there when the truth is, When we seek more from out there, what we're really doing is settling for less. And the world lives on in cynical desperation. What I'm saying is this. The secret of contentment, which is what this passage is about, which whenever 99% of the time when this passage is preached, it's titled the secret of contentment. Well, the secret that Paul talks about of contentment for us as believers begins with grabbing a hold of the reality that believers have a lot, a whole lot. What we, what we have is the most precious, plentiful, and prized possession in the entire universe. It's wonderful. Paul says, man, I am grateful, so grateful for this gift that you've sent. And and I know that it wasn't easy for you, but I want you to know that my happiness and my contentment doesn't depend on even such a wonderful gift because I am content in a good situation or a bad one. 
He says, I am content whether I have a little stuff or whether I have got a lot of stuff. He says, I can put up with, I can put up with anything and prosper by virtue of the one Jesus Christ who gives me strength. I love the way the, the message says it. The one who makes me who I am. See, that's a picture of biblical contentment. I think that's what Paul is getting at. It's Christ sufficiency. It's Christ contained. Every child of God has more in and through Jesus Christ. And everyone who seeks and depends upon the more of this world is actually settling for less. Because Jesus Christ is sufficient for our greatest satisfaction. Why is that? Because these these idle factories of ours called our hearts are made to find their greatest satisfaction in him. That's a wonderful truth. And it seems so simple. And you might be saying to me, Randy, can I tell you a secret? I know of all, I, I know this. I know all of this. You know, I'm I'm here listening to your sermon. You haven't told me one thing that's really new. You might have refreshed a few things, but, but, but I'll be honest. I want that. And I know that my greatest satisfaction should be in Jesus Christ. But you know what? Sometimes I find myself wanting more. Sometimes I find that I complain and I find that I murmur and I find that I fret or that that I can get sarcastic, that I can get cynical and I can get anxious about stuff. You know, I might not say anything about it, but I tell you what, I sure I sure think it. You know, another thing and I find that I'm a people pleaser. I'm not happy unless people are happy with me. And sometimes even though I know that God is all powerful and I know that God loves me. Sometimes I'm really afraid with how things might, might turn out. Like I look at that story of Job and God blessed him tremendously, but I'm not sure I'd really want to go through what he went through in order even to get the blessings that God blessed him with. I mean, I I don't always look forward to the, to the pain of a trial, even though I know it's for my good. So I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm just not there. I want to be there, but I'm just, I'm not there. It reminds me of, of uh, uh, a friend of mine and I one time rode this roller coaster with, and there was no line. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Have you ever been onto an amusement park and you get on a roller coaster? You usually have to wait 30, 45 minutes or an hour. Well, there's no line. So we get on the roller coaster and we ride that roller coaster. And when we're done, we just get off and go right again. And we ride it, ride it, ride it again, up and down and up and down. And we do it three or four times up and down. And after, after probably the fifth time, I found that we always ended up in the same place. And I was beginning to feel sick. And sometimes that's how our lives can be. We know what life is supposed to be with Jesus Christ, but we're not always there. So, then, so, so what do we do? I mean, what do we do to discover this secret that Paul seems to, seems to have down? Well, I think the answer is right here in this passage. Let me call your attention to verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I have learned. For I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have, in, I, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here it is. And you know what I found? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul learned it. It took a lifetime. And he arrived, and the word learned is used twice here. In the first learned, when it says, I've learned in whatever situation to be content, that's, that's, the, that's learned. It's not book learning, but it's more uh, experiential learning. He has been through the laboratory of life, and he has had hands-on training, and he has learned through this process to be content. And then the second word for learn is, is, is like saying, I have been taught or I have been initiated and ushered into this great mystery and I have learned it. And here I am in prison in this waiting room, chained to a guard, awaiting the word from, from Nero about my fate. And I have learned this secret, this, this mystery of contentment and it lies in him who gives me strength. Scripture talks about, especially the letters to Paul, talks about the custom curriculum of the Apostle Paul. Listen while I read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's writing to the Corinthians, telling them of his plight. And he says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I was shipwrecked. A night and day adrift at sea. I was in danger from rivers and robbers and my own people and the Gentiles in the city. He's, he's in danger of, from people in the church and from Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness and sea, danger from false brothers through different, different things, goes without food, many a sleepless night, cold and exposure. And then it says on top of that, there's the daily concern that I have for all the, all the churches. And that's not all of it. If you would continue to reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh so that he would remain humble. And he asked the Lord not once or twice, but three times to take that away. And the Lord's response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, somehow in the midst of all this, the apostle Paul learned that God's favor that God's grace is completely enough. And see, this learning process didn't come by osmosis. It it didn't uh, come by uh, uh, seeing an ad on TV that, that says, I can, you know, I will give you the secret of contentment. And if you order today, you'll receive even more. Uh, just, you know, shipping and handling separate or something like that. Three easy steps to contentment. He didn't say, hey, check out this blog on the internet and it'll tell you the secret of contentment. It was none of that. He learned through faith. This confidence and this trust and the truthfulness and the character of an infinite, eternal, unchanging God who loves his children as much as he loves his son. And when he says things like he says in Hebrews chapter 13, our Lord says, I will never leave you and never will I forsake you. We can believe that because of the character of God. So it's a secret. 
What is the secret of learning contentment that's found in Christ? Well, I've been thinking about this. and I'm going to throw something out at you. I'm going to throw out what I think is, is maybe not the secret, but it's certainly a large part of this secret from contentment. I think the secret of learning contentment might just be developing a thankful heart. Developing a heart, not not, not just a, a happy heart, but a heart that is genuinely and, and demonstrates a thankfulness to God and chooses, in spite of whatever, to be thankful to God. See, a thankful heart is a heart that delights in the Lord. And Scripture reminds us that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, then He will give us the desires of our heart. The desires of our heart will be given to us by the Lord as we delight in Him. Now, why do I say this? Why do I say a thankful heart is so important? Well, if you just look at Paul's letters, no less than 15 times in his letters, he talks about demonstrating a thankful heart. He, he, thanks, he, he, he is thankful in almost every letter. I thank God in my every remembrance of you. I thank God for you in Thessalonica. And he goes on, and he talks about being thankful. Uh, I'm thankful that I am in prison because it is made my fellow believers bold in their faith. I am thankful that I am chained to a Roman soldier because that means I get the opportunity to share the gospel with the entire Roman guard. Thankful hearts. You know, think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had everything in the Garden of Eden that they needed to be content But rather than being thankful for all that they had, they chose the one thing that God told them to stay away from. They focused on one thing and they let their discontentment get the best of them. Here's how Romans 1 describes it. It says, for they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. When Romans 1 talks about the nature of sin, part of it, he says they did not give thanks to him. Thanksgiving is certainly demonstrated by Jesus Christ in a lot of different ways. Remember last week, if you were here, you participated in communion. You participated in what is called the Holy Eucharist. And you might know that the word for Eucharist means thanksgiving. Jesus broke, Jesus broke the bread and he gave thanks. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. In spite of the fact that he had just sent Judas, a friend, he had just sent him away to betray him. And in spite of the fact of what he was going to go through on the cross, and he knew what the disciples were going to be going through. And what did he say? He took the bread and he gave thanks. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. He was preparing his disciples for what they were going to undergo by teaching them to give thanks. And you know what Thanksgiving does? Thanksgiving demonstrates 
faith. A heart that is full of thanksgiving is a heart that is full of faith. It is a heart that is at rest. And somewhere along the way, the Apostle Paul had learned and had become convinced in the providence of the good shepherd who really does take care of his sheep. You might know this story. It's the story of Horatio Spofford and his wife, Anna. Horatio and his wife, Anna, lived in Chicago around 1850, 60, 1870. And he was a, a good man. He was a wealthy man. He was a Presbyterian elder. And he was uh, a good friend of evangelist Dwight L. Moody. They had five children, four girls and a boy. Youngest uh, boy, only boy, Horatio, unfortunately, when he was four years old, He contracted scarlet fever and he died. Within a year, they lost almost everything they had in the Chicago fire. Anna's health, after a couple of years later, Anna's health faded. So they decided as it was fading and they needed to regroup that they would take a family trip to Europe. And as things happened, they got ready to go and the day came to go, but Horatio had some emergency business dealings and he had to stay behind, but he didn't want to disappoint his family. So he put his wife, Anna, and the four girls on the ship to sail to Europe and he was going to join them a few days later. Well, then on November 22nd, 1873, the steamer that was carrying Anne and their four daughters was struck by a British ship. And it sank in 12 minutes. And only 81 of the 307 crew members survived this tragic shipwreck. Anna was found unconscious in all the debris and she was picked up and she was taken to to Wales to the hospital where she telegraphed a brief and heartbreaking message to Horatio. Saved alone. What shall I do? Well, as soon as he received Anna's telegram, Horatio left Chicago without delay to go there and to bring his wife home. Well, sailing across the Atlantic on the way to Europe, the ship captain that Horatio was on called him and told him to come to the bridge. And when he got to the bridge, he informed him that the best they could tell, this was the spot of that shipwreck. Well, that night, Horatio Spofford went back to his cabin and penned the words to a hymn that I'm sure you know. When peace like a river has attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, if you want to know the secret, if you want to know the peace of God, Learn to find your contentment in the God of peace. If you want the peace of God, learn to be thankful for the providence of the good shepherd. God doesn't forget us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He knows us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He understands us. And he focuses upon his children with this omniscient love and orders everything to work together for good for his children. 
So what I want to encourage you to do this morning is to, I want to encourage you with the words of Asaph in the 73rd Psalm. And I want you to, to make this your aim. Asaph says, whom, in, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, we really do desire to delight in you. But there are so many times that we, uh, we, we kind of want to make deals. We want you, but we want other stuff too. And we acknowledge before you that leave our hearts to themselves and they'll just conjure up idols that we chase after. And Lord, we don't really want to be that way. We want to be able to delight in you. Father, the Apostle Paul learned through the course of his life. And we pray that we might learn in the same way. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.